But again, if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're going to look at here in just a second. <clears throat> but I don't, I don't know about you, but I, sometimes when I, when I, me growing up, I needed a little extra motivation sometimes when it came to my behavior. Um, that little behavior modification as a parent, you know, sometimes uh, some, like my brother, could be very much just looked at. And it was like he would melt. Like all, his pa- all, all my parents had to do was kind of look at him, and he's going to do the right thing just by giving him the look. Uh, my parents needed a little extra motivation for me. Uh, it took a little bit more to get me to correct my behavior. Uh, and so they, they used a lot of different means to accomplish that mission. Uh, and I, I'm encouraged to know that it's worked. <laughs> uh, but sometimes, you know, I, I think of Amanda as well with our kids. Um, sometimes, you know, it's like, don't go in the road, like trying to warn our kids, don't walk in the street, and she'll give you like worst case scenario, because if you go in the street, you might be killed, you know, or whatever, like a car might run you over, and it's like, it's like, go to this big extreme to like try to teach them like, don't go in the road. Like my brother, you just get to say, don't go in the road. If you told me that, I would have played in the road until I got hit, probably. Uh, so my parents had to use a little extra motivation with me. But sometimes in all of life, though, we need a good vivid picture to understand a concept or to understand the seriousness. Growing up, again, my parents, in one of those illustrations of that, my cousin um, died in a car accident. It was brutal, and he was driving, uh, my understanding, he was driving drunk and way over speed on a winding road in Charlotte. I knew um, uh, the area, but I was young. I was little. I mean, I'm, I'm probably, I don't know, six, eight, ten, somewhere in there. And, but my parents told us about it when it happened, that he had passed away, but they took us to the wreck yard to show us his little car and it being completely mangled. And that was a lesson for me. I got to see like what happens when you do this. Here's the potential of what can happen. It took me seeing that sometimes. It takes us sometimes seeing some vivid picture to understand like, man, I probably should do this. You know, you know certain things and we know certain things. You maybe even taught certain things, but sometimes it takes a, a clear picture to understand it. And this morning, this is exactly what happens, and I think this is so fascinating because we have this story, and we're going to look at 20 verses of this story. It's the story of Jesus healing a man who was possessed or uh, who was demonized, as, you, as, if, as if it were. And this person who is oppressed by this demon, but actually not just demon, as we're going to learn, it's going to be a legion of demons. I mean, we're talking about thousands of potentially of demons. We're given so much detail on this story, and you want to ask the question, Why? Mark is the shortest gospel in the whole Bible. It is, as you read it, it quickly are getting fast to the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, We've been moving kind of quickly through it as the first four chapters have covered. They're covering story after story with really, like he says these phrases, immediately. He jumps quickly. Immediately this happened. Immediately that happened. But then we come to this story and it's like it goes to a screeching halt. It is one of the longest dialogues that we have and stories that we have in the whole Gospel of Mark. And I think the reason, the reason that is speaking at least to me, is because Mark is trying to teach us a lesson. Yes, we're learning about who God is. That is really the big picture of Mark. Who is God? Who is this Jesus, actually? Is he actually who he claims to be, God? We looked at, he has the power just, I know it's been a month ago, or a few months ago, but we see that he has the power to calm a storm, and that terrified his own followers. His followers, what scared them was the storm at first, but what really got a hold of them was that Jesus actually spoke, and the storm stopped, and they're like, 
wait a minute, he's more than just this great rabbi and more than what our understanding of a Messiah is. He's something more. And this story gives us another picture of who God is, but it also paints a very vivid picture of the effects of sin. I think oftentimes in the midst of temptation and our struggle with making unwise choices, we don't realize how powerful or how painful or how devastating these small little choices of sin, what it leads to. And in this passage, we learn the effects of sin. In the picture of this demon-possessed man, we really get a good picture of what sin does and evil does to a person. So I want to read the whole story together, and then we're going to walk through it together. So if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this, They came to the other side. So again, they were going on the other side. Jesus calms the storm. They were terrified, thinking they're going to die. But Jesus said, we're going to get to the other side. And sure enough, they do get to the other side. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the, county, or to the country of the Gerasenes. And so this, again, just to give you a picture of this, this is the area kind of get as you're getting to the Decapolis, Decapolis the, which is Deca, meaning ten. So it's this Gentile mixture of Gentiles and Jews all living in this area, in these ten different Roman cities. And so as they get to the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, There's that word that we see often in this book, immediately. There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I mean, just let that paint a picture of what's going on in this man. Because if you remember, the Genesis gives us a picture that mankind, all people, all human beings, were made in the image of God. We're to reflect who God is, his character, his, his, his heart, his purity, his holiness, that is this imprint that is on every person, but it has been marred by sin. And nothing shows us how marring it can be than to see a person that is consumed by thousands of demons. I mean, listen to the words that is said here. This man, for one, is what is he? Where is he? He is in the tombs. He's made his home, his dwelling among the graves and the tombs around him. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, it says in verse 3. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Look at verse 5, again, the description here. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones, marring the image of God imprinted on him. See, that's exactly what the devil wants. That's what the Satan and his minions want to do, demons want to do. They want to mar. They're, mar, they're trying to mar the image of man. And here is this picture of this man who is bound. He's shackled. And first, I want you to see this morning is the effects of sin in just these verses. I think you could already pick up on them without even telling you about them. I mean, notice one is this, the effects of sin. Notice the bondage of sin. You see how he's, this picture that we get of this demon, demonized man is he's bound. Have you ever noticed how much control you really have in this life? 
think sometimes we think we have way more control than we really do have. Here, sin, what it is exactly what it does is actually it controls us. You see, sin controls over and it controls our lives. lives. Here's what happens, though. I want to give you a picture of this. Um, and I want you to see this, how practically that this happens in our lives, if you've not noticed it before in your own, is this. I mean, if you make anything in your life more important to you than God, you know what it becomes? It becomes your master. I'm not the first person to say this. I've heard this over the years. Uh, Tim Keller, Rich, I think Richard Baxter, I've heard so many different pastors and others talk about this effect. And I've noticed it even in my own life is how when something becomes more important to you than God, what happens? You actually become a master to it. Think about this. If, for instance, if, if what really gets you going in the morning, what gets you awake what gets you out of bed? What motivates you to move on about your day? What really moves your heart? What makes you feel fulfilled? What brings you the greatest hap- happiness? For instance, if you love to have power, right? What, guess what? You become, controlled, you become controlled by power. If you want to be accepted by people, I know I can struggle with this, right? I remember in high school just longing to fit in, and you just want to make the right fit. So it's like, all right, I want to fit in with my football teammates, and I want to fit in with this crowd and that crowd. I want to fit in with everybody. And so I just naturally wanted everyone to accept me. But guess what happens? You become controlled by those people because you're trying to be accepted by them. So naturally, what are they doing? They're not even trying to, but they're controlling you. You become controlled by the things that you make important to you. If you center your life on family, it's like you make that the thing. It is the biggest thing. It's the highest priority above God in everything. Guess what? It will control you. For instance, when your kids don't act the way you want them to act, when all of a sudden they're misbehaving in front of other people, and this is when it gets really bad, is if you're finding all your satisfaction in being a parent, but then also you love the acceptance of people. What happens when your child is going crazy in the grocery aisle? Right? You're, you're, you don't want these people to judge you as a parent. Like, I'm a good parent. I'm a good parent. And then now my child's doing this. What's it going to do? It might lead you to anger. It might lead you to lash out. It might lead you to get really, really upset with this person or with this child. And naturally, all of a sudden, you're embarrassed and you're not even disciplining with the right motive. You're disciplining actually from your own heart and your own desire to be accepted that I'm Good, a good enough parent, or my, my children should know better, and so I should be known as a good parent, and my kids are good. If you make career your idol, you make success and power and pursuit of that, you will live, breathe, and die by that. And guess what it does? It controls you. This is exactly what sin does to each and every person. I think of this, I follow these guys, I, again, I love golf, and so um, I naturally all of a sudden found this YouTube channel of these guys who play golf called Good Good. I don't know if you've heard of them or not. You probably haven't. Make fun of me later if you want. Just don't do it right now. But uh, these guys, and there's this one guy, his name's Bubby. <laughs> so now you can make fun of me more. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Um, but that's not his real name. That's a nickname, of course. But, but anyways, but this guy, um, he was sharing on his own channel about his struggle with addiction to alcohol and its effects on him and that he had become such an alcoholic. Um, that he was, that he was, I mean, it was controlling him. He couldn't stop. It's like the first thing he's thinking about when he wakes up was more alcohol. The last thing he thinks about as he's going to sleep, if he's even alert and fully alert, was alcohol. 
and, and it consumed him, and he would get so belligerent, and he would he, he'd talk about how he would wet himself at night. I mean, all the things that he would do while he was completely passed out drunk. And he would say he'd be so belligerent. And one time he's like, he's li- I'm living in Chicago, and I, I was completely drunk. I mean, I have no idea at the point or whatever, but my friend, he took a video of me, and he videoed me, and he, he showed how, how poorly I was treating everyone, and how awful he was being, and how nasty and vul- vulgar and all these things about him. And so th- that morning when he woke up and he was hungover and as he's kind of coming to again, his friend had texted him the video so he could see it. He said that was the point. I, mean, I don't think he's a believer or anything like that and a follower of Jesus, but that was the point that kind of woke him up to his, his fight to, to overcome the addiction that the stronghold had on his life. You see, so easily that's something that started, as he tells his story, it started just with something small when he was younger. For some of us, maybe it starts really, really small. It's, it starts with, you're like, man, I would never, ever have an affair. I would never do that. But yet, it started with some small little decisions, a little flirting here, a little flirting there, paying attention to someone else or not paying attention to the other as we were talking through our series. Naturally, those things just slowly lead to further and further of a drift in our heart. And all of a sudden, what happens? You're bound by it. You're entangled by your sin, and you feel like, I can't get out of it, and I can't overcome it. I mean, notice the language here. It's so strong that also is this. It's enslaving, but the reality is it's the inability to break free on your own. You don't even have the power to break free from these things. Notice this. I mean, they're saying this man was so bound by these things, and they would even, he was such a detriment to this society that they just bound him. They would try to shackle him and chain him up and to to hold him, but he would break free of these shackles, and he was still tormented, completely and utterly tormented. And what had this done? You know what else? Another effect of sin is this, is that it isolates us. The isolation that comes through sin. You isolate. Have you ever noticed that? When you get caught up into sin, it becomes an addiction. It becomes something. Guess what you naturally do? You isolate yourself from people. Not only, obviously, are you isolating yourself from God, but you begin to isolate yourself from others. You pull back and you retreat. It's isolating. Naturally, it's wanting to live in the dark and stay in the dark. And here it's telling us, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. You see, this this isolation brought separation not only from God, but also from others. And notice what happens, this downward decline, the effects of sin. It leads to self-destructive habits and and actually self-destructive nature of sin as well. We see this here. Again, the, the marring of the image of God and man. These demons, I, I believe there is no, there's nothing in the text that tells us definitely this but I believe, and I've read this from other commentators as well agreeing, is that this is a picture of exactly what this, these demons are wanting to do. They're trying to destroy this man. They're trying to ruin his life. They're trying to destroy him. And sure enough, he's trying to end his misery by hurting himself. And he's cutting himself. He's trying to kill him. And he just couldn't get victory in a sense of victory of, of just ending it, making it all go away. He didn't have the power in and of himself. And that leads us to the rest of the story, and it's where we see the power of Christ to defeat the evil and the sin of this world. I want you to look at it, verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. 
And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Again, they're making, I mean, a strong statement of God's, Jesus' deity, that he is God. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? But also, most would agree that this man was making a statement trying to, or the demons were trying to put their power over him by saying, I know who you actually are, by putting their power. We looked at that earlier in the book of Mark as well. But as he's trying to do this, notice what he says as he goes on. This man goes before him. The demons are really speaking through him. I adjure you. That is that word there. If you have a different translation, you may see it differently. But it's like this commanding. I'm trying to tell you what to do. And so naturally, these demons are trying to tell Jesus what to do, even though they just said, what have you to do with us, the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Again, Legion was about 6,000 soldiers in the Roman Empire at this time. And so this, this picture of maybe thousands, this man being tormented by thousands of demonic forces. In verse 10 it says, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Notice this, they're begging. I mean, they're having to ask for his permission. These demons, all of them, this legion of demons are asking for God's permission to cast them out or cast them to somewhere else. Like, don't cast us into the abyss. Lead us somewhere else. And they're actually going to see, as we see, a herd of pigs are right around the corner there. But I want you first to see the power that's involved here, the authority of Jesus over sin and darkness. You see, reality is this, the demons even recognize, uh, they recognize Jesus' authority. Jesus commands them to leave the man. But I want you to see something as we look at verse 11 and following. Look at verse 11. So they beg him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I think even that, so again, if you want to know why the pigs, why, what's the point of the pigs? I don't think we know a point of why did these demons get cast out to the pigs? Why did the demons even ask to be cast to the pigs? Don't really have a good, we don't, I don't think there's really a good answer for that except for I think you can see exactly what the demons were after with the man. But they weren't able to accomplish through that man by taking his own life, marring the image of God imprinted on him by trying to kill him. But yet here, immediately, they get into the herd of pigs. And what happens to the pigs? Immediately, they go off a cliff and they get to their end that the demons wanted to accomplish. You see, this picture is devastating. The effects of sin is great, but the power of Christ is always, always greater. Notice here, again, they're begging Jesus. They're asking him. They're seeking his permission in verse 13. And notice, though, what happens through this transformation, the transformation through Christ. As this man is going to be transformed, I mean, leaving the expulsion of the demons, they're gone. They go to the swine, and immediately they go off the cliff. They don't want to be to the abyss, meaning kind of like the future judgment. Like, are you coming to judge us now? Are you casting us out forever? No, we'll go to the, we'll go to the pigs first instead. Will you? And they ask his permission, and sure enough, he does. 
And so after he does, we see his great power. The power of God over these demons. I mean, think about that. He has the power to calm a storm. He has the power to heal a person of leprosy just with the touch of his hand. He has the power to command a legion of a spiritual, ugly, perverse um, army of demons. He's able to just say one word to them, out, and they leave. I, want you to, I just want you to hear this for a second this morning. I know some of you, I'm sure, are struggling with various areas of sin. I know in, in different areas in my heart, there's, there's these things, and they have such a stronghold in your heart. Whether it's pride and this pride of acceptance or being liked and accepted, or if it's this, this pride of, of, of wanting to be better than, or maybe it's just material things and wanting to have these things, and naturally you're just like, I want to have a comfortable, easy life. And so you're pursuing these things and hoping that they will make you happy. And, they, and this has a stronghold on your life, or maybe there's this addiction or this struggle to sin, whether it's lust or whether it's pride or it's this desire for power. Whatever it is, it has a serious stronghold in your heart. And probably, maybe you've tried many, many times. I've sat, I've sat across countless teenagers, families, parents, dads, husbands, Wives, I've sat across the table in counseling sessions talking to them and their genuine desire to overcome an addiction or to overcome a problem or a sin struggle. And it's devastating works. I remember sitting, this is years ago, I remember sitting across uh, the table at a Panera Bread and this, this, this man who was a small group leader, um, a, 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 what I, I assumed was a godly man and I think he genuinely was trying to live a godly life. But I remember when he opened up to me and he shared some of his struggles. He said, man, I have been fighting this since I was about 15 years old. And I'm now about 45. And it has just been a constant struggle. And I'm like, he's like, I've prayed. I've tried. I've said, I've tried all these different things. I've tried to put certain things and safeguards and all these things in my life to protect me. And it's just, I keep struggling. I, it has too much power. It has too much authority over me. And I cannot get freedom. And I remember sitting across the table from him and saying, have you asked God for the, the power to change? Have you asked for his transforming grace in your life? Have you, have you been trusting him with that power? Or have you only been really doing it in your own power? And I remember him saying, he's like, listen, I, I read my Bible sparingly. I pray rarely. I'm like, well... That sounds a lot like you're trying to do it in your own strength. If you're not going to go to the Lord for help, if you're only going to go to Him sparingly, you're probably not really going to Him with help. Listen, He has the power. He has the authority. He has the authority to transform a life. And that's what we exactly get here. And I want you to see the impact. Not only are we seeing the power of Christ to defeat sin, but also we see the impact of Christ's deliverance. Look at this deliverance of this man. So now he's cast out the demons. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to, see, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. <laughs> and notice the next words, and they were afraid. 
The man was a torment to their society. He's living among the tombs. They've tried to chain him. It couldn't work. He's crazy. He's lost his mind. He is, he's going around and, and causing havoc all over the town, and they've tried to stop him. Now he's sitting down. He's now got clothes on. He's in his right mind, calm and sitting there, and they're afraid. Why are they afraid? It says in verse 16, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And notice the next phrase. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I get it, right? There's this economic impact. Jesus spoke, he cast out demons, those demons enter a herd of pigs, and those herd of pigs go off a hill cliff down to their uh, end. That obviously was a very expensive and lucrative thing, and so naturally that lucrative business now was greatly impacted by Jesus' casting out of this demon. But I want you to see something, and I hope this is never true of us, is that we would care more about some things than a person. You see, this is a person. I think it would have been lost that this man was not a man anymore. They had forgotten, the town had forgotten that this man was gone. They're not marveling at this man who was once a terror, this man who was once entangled, enslaved by this de- all these demons have now been cast out as they hear this word, and they're not going, wow, this man has been set free. Maybe he can go back to his wife and his children if, they're, if he was married and had children. He can go back to his normal life. They're not, they're not thrilled and excited about that. No, they're, they're devastated at the loss to the, the effects of the economy in their town, maybe. Maybe they're, they're terrified of this Jesus. If he can do this, what else might he do to us? Man, that's, that's really, really sad, but we do this often, whether it's looking down at someone or when someone does overcome that addiction. We're like, I don't know. You know, they may, they may, they may go back or no, like, or we say that person's too far gone or they're worthless in society. To look at a person made in the image of God and treat them as if they're, they're worth less than this herd of pigs. How sad. Again, it speaks to the devastation and the impact of sin and the effects of sin in the world. But I want you to see this, this impact of Christ's deliverance. Not only is this man restored, as we're seeing, but also this response of the people. I mean, they're, they're, maybe it's the fear of the unknown, or the reje- and they're rejecting Jesus' power. But I want you to see what happens here. This is such a unique ending to this story. And it says, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, I mean, first of all, hear that. He said, we don't want you. Okay. Jesus goes back to get in the boat. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him. This word begged has been several times in this passage. He begged him that he might be with him. The man has been just transformed. His life has been, he's been set free. The bounds of sin and its effects of this demonic powers have been finally set free. He's in his right mind. He's now clothed. He's sitting there. He's not running around hurting himself. He's now there. And now he goes up to Jesus and says, hey, I want to, can I follow you? Can I be with you? Verse 19, and he did not permit him 
He says, no, you can't be with me. Why, why not? <laughs> why can't I just be with you? Why can't I stay with you? Why can't I go with you? Why can't I just follow you? You, got, you have followers. I want to be one of your followers too. But notice what he says. He has a mission for him, a specific mission. And he says, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Listen to those words. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy, has had mercy on you. And notice what he does. Verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis all those ten Roman cities how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. You see, one of the, the best stories that you can tell is the story of what God has done in your life. Now, don't make yourself the hero because you're not the hero of the story if you're a follower of Jesus. Christ Jesus is always the hero. He's the Savior. He's the one who lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you deserved. And so he's the hero. But guess what? When you're sharing the story of what God has done in your life, that is an incredible tool in how you share. This is what Jesus is even telling them to do. Jesus says, go tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. But notice this, how he has been, had mercy on you. You see, the Bible tells us elsewhere, those who've been forgiven much, love much. Those who've been forgiven little, love little. And I'm, I'm afraid that many of us, many of you in this room potentially, grown up in this Christian home potentially, you grew up knowing about Jesus from an early age, and you don't really see how devastating your sin actually is. Maybe you don't see how bad of a person you actually are apart from Christ. That I'm not that bad of a person. I mean, I've been pretty good. I mean, Jesus, yes, I need Jesus to save me, but, but I'm not that bad of a person. Listen, I want you to see that like the smallest thing, I, I've, I've been really wrestling with this in my own heart, is even when I stand in front of you every Sunday morning and when we gather together and we talk about it on, on, in, in our community groups and other times, is how many times is every word that's coming from my mouth or every time that I'm preaching God's word, is it come from just a place of absolute love for God, love for his word, and love for the church? And I just want to let you hear what God's teaching me and hear the truth of God's word. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, I wish that that were true, but it's not. Naturally, my heart wants to know, like, man, I hope this this goes over well. I hope that they understood this well, not because of I want you to understand it well, because of Eric did a good job explaining that, or Eric had a good this or that. It's so easy to let pride and, <clears throat> excuse me, in everything that we do, it is tainted by sin. I want you to hear that. Everything we do, for the most part, is, is tainted because we have this sin nature. We are born sinners. We come into this world with a sin nature that is, and it's messed up, it's marred, the image of God is marred in us. Yes, it's there, but it's, it's, it's perverted, it's been marred by sin, its effects on us. And so even oftentimes our motivations are not always pure. They're not. Oftentimes when I look at the things I do, how I parent, how I love my wife, am I always perfectly loving Amanda, my wife? No. Am I oftentimes sometimes being prideful? Yes. Is that sin? Yes. 
And that is exactly why I need Jesus. That is why this verse is so important, especially for the church. It's not just for the person who's stuck in rehab right now, who's struggling with this major addiction that they can't get overcome, and they need God to be merciful. No, you need His mercy. I need His mercy. Every day, we need His mercy. We need His grace. So don't think too highly of yourself. Think too highly. You can never think too highly of your Savior. Look to Him. And here, as you go to your friends, as you go to work, as you go to your unsaved loved ones, as you go home, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. You see, this man is completely transformed by the power of God in his life. We, too, need his transforming grace. I need his transforming grace. We see this power is found only in Christ. These people tried to chain him because he was out of his mind. They tried to chain him, but he would break them. Jesus shows up, and he, instead of trying to chain him back, he releases him, and now the man can sit (laughs) perfectly with his clothes on clothes on, and in his right mind. Jesus comes, and his life is completely transformed. And see, Jesus commissions this man to share the gospel. And it's the same commission that we have to tell others what the Lord has done for you. I want to ask you that this morning. What has God done for you? Have you put your trust in Christ alone? Are you still kind of putting that on yourself? Are you still putting your trust on, I'm not that bad of a person or Like, I'm trying to relate with God. I understand Jesus did die on a cross, but I'm still trying to, like, earn that favor. I feel like I've never been accepted really by Him. Maybe you struggled with acceptance throughout your life and wondering, really, can, could actually God really, truly accept me? And you're, you're like, nah, there's no way. And so I've got to earn it. I've got to earn it. I've got to earn it. And you've been spending your life trying your best to defeat sin and to earn God's love. Listen, go to the only one who can. Go to Christ Jesus. Go to Him and ask Him. Seek His forgiveness. Ask for His mercy, and He will liberally give it to you. I love what Paul Tripp said. He says this, Your hope is not found in your activity. It is found in your identity as a child of this conquering King. Let me say that again. Your hope is not found in your activity, in the things you do. Your hope is not in what you do. It is only found in your identity as a child of this conquering king. You see, he went to the cross. He took the nails. He took the scorn. He took all of that so that in this picture here, he took the bondage. He took literally this man's place on the cross. This man who was bound in chains, who was despised and rejected by his own people, Jesus took this man's place, and he takes the place of every person who puts their faith and trust in him alone. Will you find yourself at the foot of the cross, trusting in him? This is where we can only find the power for deliverance. But the beauty is this, is the impact comes. And as it comes, this impact is we see the restoration of a man. We receive this response of the people who have a decision to make. Do we want this Jesus or not? And they said, no, we don't want him. And then also we see the commission to share the gospel. And so that is the same commission that we have. What is your response to this king? Who is this Jesus as Mark is trying to tell us? What is your response? 
How are you going to live your life? Are you going to be like the, the one who is, you're enslaved by this pursuit of something? You're pursuing this, hoping it's going to give you fulfillment, and you've been pursuing it, climbing this ladder of success, or trying to be something that maybe you want to be, and you're hoping to be, and you're pursuing all these things, and these become easily these idols in your life. What will you do with that? What would it look like to, to stand before this one and say, I follow you, I give you my life. What do you want me to do? If you call me to follow you, I'll follow you. If you call me to stay and to tell the world, I'll tell the world. You see, this man was completely changed by the gospel. And guess what? He can change any life. He can take thousands of demons and change this man. Pretty confident he can change yours. Trust him. Trust this one Rather than asking him to depart from you because he's coming after your idols, let him in. Let him chisel away at your heart. Respond to him with humility and and trust and beg for his mercy and his grace in your life and watch as he works in and through you. Let me say it one more time. Your hope is not found in what you do, in your activity. It's found in your identity as a child of this conquering king. Let me pray as we close Our Father and our God, we are so thankful, so thankful for Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for the power that you have, the power to defeat the greatest strongholds in our lives. God, you are too too good to us. in our sin, stuck in it, that you paved a way, that you've made a way to set us free from the power of sin over us and its stronghold on us. And so, Father, help us, help us to draw near, help us to grow, help us to respond by, with faith and repentance. May we turn from our sin and turn to this risen Savior who has overcome the world, who has defeated the enemy of death and hell. It's been defeated at the cross and at the empty tomb. So I thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, to take our place. Thank you that there is victory, that we can have victory over the sin through, the fa- through faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. And God, help us to, 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 embo- to be bold in sharing this wonderful news of what God has done in our lives. Help us not to shy away. Help us not to retreat. Help us not to reject you. Help us to respond with faith. And help us to to live lives of service, sharing what the Lord has done in us and how you have been merciful to us. May that be the tune of our song throughout our days. May the interactions with our children, with our coworkers, may it be with a tone and a tune of a, a person who has been saved by grace alone. Help us to share that news. And God, will you awaken this community to the gospel? I just cannot help but think how many people are just cultural Christians here in the South. How many are just thinking they're good, but they're, they're so consumed with the things of this world. And they're not, they're not, they've not at once really given their life to you. They might have prayed a prayer when they were younger, but, or maybe attended a church service here and there, but never really, truly followed you. I pray that we would be like this man, that we'd be willing to follow you wherever you go. And if you call us to go, we'll go. Awaken us from the apathy. Awaken this community from apathy and 
pride and self-righteousness. God, help us to, to live lives of holiness and love only because you are holy and you are love. We thank you that you are this God who is so holy and righteous that these demons need to run from your presence. They have to hide. There's only one. There's only one holy God, and we want to worship you this morning in our response to you. So, Father, may our hearts be radically motivated by your grace to us. Help us, God. Help us in all these ways. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.